At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is another episode of our very special series, Getting to Know Our Coaches. I'm joined here with Alex. Alex, are you in Ohio? Yeah, I'm in central Ohio. I get confused if it's like Ohio or Indiana or <laughs> like, cause it all, even though I'm from the Midwest, I'm from St. Louis, oh. I get confused. I always want to say Ohio, but then I'm less confident than I should be. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, mid- it's all the same, really. I mean, let's just be honest. Sure, sure. So Alex is over in Ohio. I'm in, still in California. I'm in the middle of a move. Uh, in two days, I will not be located where I'm currently located. <laughs> so, we're, but we're making it happen for you guys, for the listeners. Uh, Alex, why don't you uh, why don't you give people a little more background other than the fact that you live in Ohio? Tell <laughs> people about yourself, and then uh, we'll go from there. Okay, so uh, my name is Alex Kovaleski. Uh, I am a strength coach with Barbell Medicine, obviously. Um, I started training about 12 years ago um, when I was playing football. And then I had to do powerlifting in the offseason. And then I was like, you know what? I like this powerlifting stuff a lot more than I like the football stuff. So uh, once I graduated high school, I um, decided to start learning more about just lifting, strength and conditioning, biomechanics, stuff like that while I was in physical therapist assistant school. And that's kind of what led me down the rabbit hole. Then I discovered research and um, now we're here, I guess. It started from the bottom. Yeah, it started from the bottom. Now we're here. Exactly. Yeah. So and you're in the process of applying to medical school? Uh, not quite yet, but I'm doing my prerequisites for medical school. I just finished my bachelor's degree in, um, allied healthcare management, and now I'm doing all my physics, chemistry, OCHEM, all that stuff. Okay. And then you'll take the new MCAT and then yes. go on to apply. Yeah. I'll take the MCAT around March of 2020. Great. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm excited for you. I'm, I'm not, I'm more excited that you're doing this and I don't have to do it again. <laughs> you're right. Mine, my, uh, I, I have, it actually wasn't that bad now that I, I think about it, but I, I think I'm, I'm wearing rose tinted glasses because <laughs> I was so nervous applying to medical school. Mm-hmm. A- and then it was like, in my mind, I was so non-traditional. Like in my, in my mind, I thought everybody else that was applying had graduated straight away from undergrad. Mm. taking the MCAT while they're in undergrad fresh, while these topics were fresh, right? And then, and I was the outlier. I'd been out for 
<clears throat> five years before I applied to medical school. And like, it, it just, I, I felt like the people were going to have to like take a chance on the <laughs> yeah. one, which, you know, it ended up being fine. Obviously I did very well in medical right. school and I don't know that there's like, you know, the people at the medical school that Austin and I went to still, you know, remember who we are. <laughs> Although now we have a scholarship there. So, okay. Yeah. I wanted to call it, you know, it's funny. I wanted to call it the gain scholarship, <laughs> But that got shot down. So yeah. anyway. <laughs> Especially if you tried to, to um, uh, propose that it was spelled with a Z. I did. Three Zs. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they said, uh, "Is there are there any other names that you <laughs> would potentially go with? I said, I guess that means no. Um, but, you know, in my, I was like, well, it's my, it's, it's my money. Like, right. Let me just – anyway. So we're giving back to community. I'm really hopeful you, uh, you have a successful uh, application season and then – in a year from now or a year and a half from now when we do this again, you can tell people how your first year of medical school is going. Um, so that'd be cool. Uh, Alex, so here – people may pick up on this. And you're, you're how old? You're 24? I'm 25. 25. Okay. So Alex is one of the younger barbell medicine coaches. What what does a young research-driven current student – do on a, a Friday night. It's Saturday morning now. So what? It, what's you know? What do you? What's your normal weekend look like? Uh, uh, just a whole lot of studying. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> super interesting person. Very dynamic. I study on the weekends. That's about it. Um, no, yeah. I mean, I just I just study a lot because I have this intense fear of not knowing everything that I can possibly know for my upcoming exams. Yeah, so sure. yeah, I just spend a lot of time studying. I try to read a little bit if possible. Um, I just found a biostatistics textbook at half price books for like seven bucks. So I've been really interested in reading more of that recently. Um, wow. But yeah, I coach on the weekends and study more on, on Sunday. So your, your Tinder profile, I assume, <laughs> is very, very in, uh, uh persuasive. So. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, Hey, let's learn a lot together. Let's, let's learn together. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, I, I, you know, my weekends are, especially this past weekend, this particular weekend is not, not that much better. We had a, a little watch party last night, uh, for some of the live streams from early in the day for the IPF, uh, worlds okay. and then this morning. And then, but then it ended early. So I could wake up early this morning and watch Ray, uh, which, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. So, spoiler alert: if you are interested in, <laughs> in watching Ray's session and you haven't already, I don't. I, you know, this will be about a week removed by the time it goes up or so. But if you haven't seen it already and you want to go watch it, just stop the podcast here. Go watch. It's on YouTube. They have all the streams. What? So Ray Williams, if you don't, if you're not familiar with uh, USA Powerlifting, um, what had happened was he has been the dominant force in the super heavyweight division now for. I mean, the better part of five or six years, uh, I remember his first meet. It was, you know, I, he, he's from Georgia or Alabama or maybe it's Mississippi. Mississippi, I, I, yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I just, they all run together, just like the Midwest. <laughs> right. But, but I remember his first meet. It was a USAPL meet, but they were using strange plates. Like it wasn't – they didn't have all like the – the competition kilos uh, plates that, they, that you normally see in a USAPL meet. But any, in any event, I think – he opened at like 800 on the squat and then one of his attempts was 881 and it moved so quickly that he actually lost balance. Wow. (laughs) And and everyone, that was his first meet, right? And everyone's like, this guy's so raw, you know, 
he's going to be great. And it turns out uh, that particular prediction was correct. The guy's a savage. His you know best squats over a thousand pounds. Uh, he he benches in the five uh, you know mid to upper five hundreds when he wants to. And then if he has to deadlift something heavy, he can do that too. Uh-huh. I think his deadlifts have been creeping over eight hundred recently. So the guy, by all intents and purposes, was supposed to win worlds, potentially set another all time squat record. But did you watch his session this morning? No, I was not able to. I, I saw on Instagram some people saying that he ended up uh, bombing out, but I didn't. Yeah. I don't know exactly why. Yeah, he bombed. He bombed out. And so again, if you're not familiar with powerlifting, this conversation, you're like, "What the heck are these guys talking about?" <laughs> if you bomb out, it means you fail to achieve at least one good lift in one of the three disciplines: squat, bench press, or deadlift. In this particular case, he bombed out on his squat, which is supposed to be his money maker. I mean, basically, the guy puts up a huge squat, and then he has such a gap on the field that even if they bench a little bit more or deadlift a little bit more, he's got such a advantage that he, he can, just coasts. Yeah. Yeah. Even though he still sets world record totals and what used to be Wilkes scores now IPF points. Anyway, he walked the, his first attempt out, which I think was, uh, it was either 881 or, or, or close or close to 900. And it looked, I've never seen him walk a weight out like that. It looked like me trying to walk out the same weight, <laughs> like shaking, you know, vibrating, like, like he was either hurt or it, it was, it's almost like it was a misload and it was like a hundred pounds too heavy. Jeez. Hey, I know. And, and you, you never see that from him. Even at his like heaviest loads, he unracks over a thousand, like it's one thirty five. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that, that's a, that's like an Ed Cohn ism. His mother, <laughs> former great powerlifter. He's like, basically the walkout was the hardest part. Once I practiced that, once I could feel a thousand on my back, you know, I'd be fine. But so, so he walks this thing out. He's shaking all over the place. They finally give him a squat command after he spends way too long setting up. And uh, normally his descent speed is like pretty quick. He like descends rather quickly to get a good bounce out of the bottom. You take advantage of that stretch shortening cycle, stretch reflex, the whole deal. But this was almost like a tempo, like partial descent. And then he decided to like, oh, I'm going to bounce. And then he came up and it looked like he was going to grind it out. But then it went forward and he ended up in the rack. Like Jeez. he ended up pushing the ball. Yeah. So it was weird. And then he missed a second and third. He like, so he bombs out. Right. God. So he'll be back. But man, that was, if you, if you, if you would have asked me like, what's one like surefire prediction that you can make for IPF worlds. I was going to say that Ray, you know, wins the super heavyweights. Yeah. Just not like, only wins, but like crushes everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he'll be back. And if you're not interested in powerlifting, I apologize for the last two minute discussion about <laughs> powerlifting, but you know, we're, we're interested in lifting arbitrarily sized weights through arbitrarily defined ranges of motion in a, <laughs> in a sanctioned sport. Sometimes. Yeah, and so. I mean, if the, the, the TLDR of that is we lift things and then we're done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too tired. Uh, I just want to lift heavy weights. Uh, yeah. So that was, that was interesting. And, and, but yeah, that was my Friday night was a little watch party for the 83s and the 93s. Um, from yes, the morning pri- uh, previous, and then uh, this morning I woke up early, watched Ray, and then now I've just been packing all day. So that's my GPP. Yeah. All right. So here's what I want to talk about to start off with. Let's talk about some programming because okay. you have an article that's coming out. It may be out prior to this uh, actually going up, but if it's not, it's coming, folks. It's, it's on its really way. Good, it's a really good article about period is, periodization. And the, the idea is that 
if you if you've, especially if you've been involved in like exercise science or, or strength conditioning or even the fitness world at large for any period of time, you've heard of periodization. It's been beaten into you that it is a good thing, right? And that we know a lot about it. Yeah, it's like a, like a borderline necessity. We we seem to have this idea that we can. Um, describe the elements of periodization by labeling them as laws, like the law of supercompensation, which, I mean, for something to be a law in science, it has to be true under any and all circumstances, which right. for supercompensation is definitely not the case. Um, and so uh, it's it's been very interesting to kind of go through this literature and see that a, a lot of these claims that are made about the you know, very reliable scientific nature of periodization are not as, you know, solidly supported as we previously thought. Yeah. I mean, so for, for example, when you're talking about programming to other people, you know, there are a handful of principles that you have in mind that you may even talk about directly. So for instance, the principle of progressive overload, principle of specificity, or the the said principle, specificity of adaptation to the imposed demand, um, things of that nature. But there is no – it's not like a principle of periodization. It's more just like an assumed concept that any intelligent program will possess Mm -hmm. in in that over time, you're going to alter the training in ways to, you know, optimize the response and it has to be planned well in advance. Right. Like like we almost – uh, the the underlying idea is that uh, no matter what circumstances the lifter may face or no matter what condition they might find themselves in, we can override that with knowledge of biology and physiology and, and how things work. And, and we can kind of force the lifter to do things, um, which, I mean, as, as hopefully our audience knows, that kind of seems a little sketchy. Yeah. Knowing the complex nature of, of humans and, and how we operate, it just doesn't really add up. So, I mean, do you find this to be a little reductionist in a way? Like we're we're kind of reducing everything down to the biological impact of the external load. So like sets, reps, range of motion, total work. And if you just get that right, if you just get that right, then the outcomes will be you know, as, as desired, if you just make the input X, then the output's going to be Y reliably. Yeah. Yeah, It it seems very reductionistic. It's almost like, um, it's, it's kind of like in school and like formal education in terms of like, if you just teach someone the information and they just like, know what they're supposed to do, then that is simply enough. But, you know, like there's a lot more to it than that. Like they have to understand things and there's a, there's a lot more complexity to a lot of these subjects that, um, is, is not really recognized at first. And, and with training, it's like, you know, it's not just about getting the volume, right? It's not just about getting the sets and reps and, and organizing your microcycle appropriately. It's a lot of, it's about, you know, like attending to the other demands associated with developing a lifter and in terms of making sure that they have the right mindset approaching a session or making sure that they, they know how to manage their outside life stressors or other things like that. It's not just about the training program because we only spend 
a couple hours per day in the gym. And there's a whole lot that happens to a person outside of that two hours per day. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way one analogy that I, I like to make is to low back pain or pain mm-hmm. in general. So again, our audience, particularly if you've been listening for a while or following us for a while, you're aware that we refer to this biopsychosocial model for pain uh, all the time, meaning that there are biological, psychological, and social factors that are integrated all together to – uh, basically make, uh, make the pain experience that somebody has. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, they're not just biological factors. They're not just psychological factors, not just social or environmental and cultural factors. It's all of that combined, integrated. And the individual, you know, may, an individual may, uh, may, and all, often does have different, a different response, a different pain response, pain experience than another individual with the same type of injury you know, or biological mm-hmm. insult. So two people could experience the same biological insult and have markedly different responses to that insult based on psychosocial inputs. Uh, it, with respect to training, the way I, I view this is that there's the external load, which is, again, sets, reps, range of motion, total work done in a session, duration of a session, all that, all these sort of like hard inputs. And then that is combined with the individual characteristics of the lifter, which has to do with genetics, the mm-hmm. environment that they train in, their psychosocial sort of understanding and influences that, you know, are numerous or innumerable. Like there's just so yeah. many of them, right? And so and all of that gets integrated together by multiple systems in the body to ultimately yield the training load. Mm-hmm. So you could have the same training program. Same set, same rep, same exercise selection, same rest periods, same relative intensity, the whole deal. Apply it to two different individuals with different individual characteristics and get two markedly different training loads and thus training responses. So, you know, it's more complicated than just, yeah, if we get all these variables right based on the principle of periodization, yeah. we're going to get this, you know, reliable response. And, and you, you see that too. You see this heterogeneity or variance in training responses to the same program all the time. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that should be a law. (laughs) Like (laughs) like the law should be that people are going to respond differently to a given intervention based on their individual characteristics. The law of like Like the the law, the law of uncertainty. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about some concrete examples here with respect to actually like practical programming. All right. Okay. What is, what's your like process then for somebody who you're going to start coaching or, uh, and they want to, be a power lifter. So which means they likely want to get stronger in their one RM for the squat, the bench, the deadlift. Mm-hmm. What's your, what's your sort of process for, you know, taking in their information and kind of collating that, you know, wrapping your brain around it and then ultimately given, giving them some recommendations. Um, man, like the, the, obviously the first obvious step is, is how much experience does this person have with barbell training? Like have they experimented with, heavy, you know, training cycles before gone to those, those near failure, uh, RPEs and, and just generally how well do they know barbell training? And most why, people, why, that, is that a, why is that important to you? Um, because I don't want to try to throw someone into powerlifting if they just generally don't know what the training process is like, um, from a standpoint of like performance is not necessarily the goal. Uh, because performance being the goal 
is is a different beast than just training for strength and the quality of life improvements that come with resistance training. And so I want to make sure that we have a solid understanding and a uh, range, if you will, for uh, for capacity like that. Um, so once usually most people that come to us have that base. And so after that, it's kind of like, okay, what is their lifestyle demand? What sort of schedule restraints am I working with? How many times per week? How many hours per day can they train? And also kind of what's their general load outside of life in terms of do they have a family? How, what are their work demands? How many hours per week do they work? Um, what is their nutrition like? Are we in a deficit or a surplus? Um, and, and how do they feel about all the other demands that they face, right? Because that matters a whole lot. And so um, once I go through all that, let's say that you know we're in a position where we can realistically put um, the necessary resources into training for powerlifting. Um, the next move is then to look at the, the training aspect of it in terms of tweaking their variables, seeing where their volume's at, seeing what their trends are, and, uh, and then trying to see if loads need to be or doses of whatever needs to be adjusted in terms of frequency, volume, specificity, uh, intensity, stuff like that, um, and then kind of go from there. Um, a lot of it's based on what information they bring to the table before the consultation period, um, because that gives me a better picture of what they have done previously and how it's gone for them and how we can go moving forward. Right. Okay. So it sounds like it's like a, basically you're getting all this background information that that's going to determine the nuts and bolts of the program. As far as like, what resources do you have? What's your previous experience? What are the actual goals just to make sure that we're all on the same page? And then you're going to start laying out the actual programming variables. Um, with respect to those variables, like what's what do you think the most important programming variables are in the context of getting as strong as possible? Oh, man. Well, this this here, is here a, this is a loaded, loaded question. Sure. Um, oh, man. Is everything an appropriate answer? Can I say that? I mean – can be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that you need to, I'd say the scale tips slightly in favor of volume over time. Uh, but I mean, I've, I've, I don't think that it's that you can just, just kill someone with volume in one training cycle because you don't want to throw off their acute to chronic workload ratio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that making sure that over time, if you want to get stronger, you're increasing the loading that you're performing. And you're also making sure that you are optimizing for whatever the test is that you, you want to optimize for. Like with, with powerlifting, making sure that you are getting sufficient practice over time at increasing loads. As, you, as your capacity for strength on that test grows, you want to make sure that you're getting more uh, uh, practice with those loads that you have the capacity for. Um, so like auto-regulating with stuff like RPE to account for that. Um, and, but just over time, making sure that you are giving yourself more work to do to, to keep yourself responding. I think is if I had to pick one, I would say that's probably it is volume over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that falls nicely in 
to the sort of the principle of progressive overload, mm-hmm. like things in for any goal. Like if, if I would have replaced strength for powerlifting to for uh, for strength in general, or for cardiorespiratory fitness, or for hypertrophy, or you know whatever insert whatever you know training outcome, the big you know overarching idea would be the principle of progressive overload. So mm-hmm. you could do that through a number of different ways. You can add reps, add sets, which would both be volume, right? You could add frequency, mm-hmm. <laughs> which would again yeah. likely add, add volume. You could add intensity provided the you know subjective effort is the same. Otherwise, that's not really progressive overload. That's just, you know, it's just heavier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you could add, you could do more work in less time, but depending on what you're actually adding to engage in that progressive overload changes the nature of the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, so for instance, if you're just adding sets or set adding reps t- to somebody's uh, workload, you're keeping the weight the same, number of sets the same. You're just going from three sets of six to three sets of seven and three sets of eight, three sets of nine. Well, it's not that they're not going to get better at that. You are engaging in progressive overload, but the adaptations that you're selecting for by doing that are improved strength and stamina and all that other, you know, stuff at higher rep ranges. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily improving strength uh, for a one RM. Right. It, and so the, the progressive overload, I think, yes, is probably the, the overarching theme, but then particular when you specify it for powerlifting, then you, you have to, you're narrowing your focus down all the rest of those variables. The rest right. of the variables being like the intensity ranges that you're working at are set because you know <laughs> what the useful intensity ranges are for mm-hmm. driving strength adaptations and strength related adaptations. They're not, you know, things less than usually it's like 70%. They're usually higher than that. Right. Uh, and they're, we're not doing things on really short rest periods because again, <laughs> that's not the type of adaptations that we're, we're trying to attain. Rather it's, we're, we're setting all the variables unrelated to training volume at a certain, a certain way to pick the types of adaptations that are important to us. And then right. over time adding volume to that. Right. So I guess it, it kind of, um, I guess then thinking about what we both just said, a, a strong case could be made that specificity is like the, the goat, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. because like, I think in all, th- um, in all things, not just exercise selection, but in multiple, right. As it is applied to multiple variables. Yeah. Yeah. Like, spe- right. So, yeah. Right. Like, I think, um, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, so just like the specificity for, um, with respect to training intensity, for instance, um, you wouldn't necessarily program somebody to do heavy sets of 10 <laughs> as the base of their powerlifting program because it's non-specific to their goal. It doesn't mean you never do that, right. particularly in in training uh, cycles that are non-specific by design. Right. But the bulk of a, you know, purpose-built powerlifting program would not be based around heavy sets of 10 or 15 or 20 or even like even fives necessarily that, you know, you'd have things, you'd have a lot of singles, you know, for, for most individuals, you'd have a lot of, uh, uh, real, you know, higher intensity work. Uh, and then, and if you carry this thought experiment out, the exercise selection would be relatively narrow to squat, bench press and mm-hmm. deadlift and close variants to those things. And then your rest periods would be, 
you know, longer than three minutes because that's the, you're now you're working the bioenergetic system that's responsible for creating a uh, force <laughs> during these, <laughs> these high intensity sets. And so like yeah. the specificity in every single exercise variable is probably, yeah, that determines like the type of adaptations that you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, and I, w- I was thinking as, as you were making your points, I was like, you know, if volume was the most important thing, then if I was training a power lifter, I would just give them like eight sets of a hundred leg extensions or something like that, which is like, obviously I would never do that. Um, but you know, it's like, as you mentioned, like, you know, a heavy set of 10 would be appropriate for someone if the context indicated a heavy set of 10, kind of like what I was talking about with indications, contraindications in the newsletter. Um, you know, it's like, I program heavy tens or, you know, semi heavy tens, I guess, for hypertrophy phases where we're really trying to take an emphasis on decreasing the intensity and, and changing things up a little bit. Um, I've programmed, you know, like top tens, I guess, before where it's like that is in place of the one at eight so that we can try to have a daily and, um, test within the cycle that is more specific to the goal at hand. Now, that's not to say that. Uh, uh, cycles outside of that don't have the goal of adding muscle mass because they, they most definitely do. But it's just that in terms of balancing the training variables, balancing fatigue, and, and um, when you also consider like outside life stress or stuff, it might be a better idea sometimes to pull back on the intensity and, and take a focus on something like a 10 at nine or, or an AMRAP at a certain load. And then have the intensity be in that like 70 to 80 range so that we can have a, um, a different adaptation based on the context and the specificity of like the context the, and the res- the resources available. So if yeah. you have somebody with a bunch of, uh, you know, the individual characteristics they possess are, you know, I can't train more than three times a week. I only have, you know, an hour each time because I'm, you know, at a work deadline or mm-hmm. moving, or I've got this, you know, interpersonal stuff that's going on, whatever. Well, that might not be the time to run a powerlifting specific sort of training cycle where you do need more resources or, you know, for a particular individual, for us, for instance, because yeah. of where we're at in our training. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I think if someone asked me what's the most important variable with respect to powerlifting, I'd say specificity, but as long as we can apply that to all of the actual training like programming variables mm-hmm. like if you're if because i'm i'm considering that like a concept rather than like a particular variable like of course, exercise of course. selection intensity volume whatever um and but to speak to your initial point on volume and i mean again the way i think about this is that training intensity and all the other aspects of specificity determine the types of adaptations that someone's going to get from the training intervention. Mm -hmm. Training volume is going to dictate the magnitude, the size. So, and to speaking to your point, it has to go up over time. Like it just, it, that's how, like if everything else is relatively fixed based on that principle of specificity, then volume has to go up. That's, that's your big lever. That's -hmm. your big knob. That's your big adjustment switch on the equalizer to really play with to drive progressive overload because everything else is relatively fixed when you have yeah. specific outcomes that you're training for. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I mean, it's like, um, uh, you just, when you examine 
the available literature on training volume and, and intensity and, and what these things do, it's pretty clear that you get a more robust response, obviously, when you, you do more training volume. And I'm sure that, you know, there are some situations where I've uh, worked with lifters and we increased their volume and, and maybe a cycle didn't go so well, a development cycle didn't end up um, um, producing more of an effect, but it's about two to three cycles down the line. Because when you think about what volume does and how it, the goal of it is to increase muscle mass. And when we think about how quickly any individual at their stage of training can add muscle mass to their frame, it's, it's not reasonable to think that adding volume can produce, uh, more one rep max gains in a six to seven week cycle, you know, um, maybe if you did more volume at higher intensities, like if you added, a, a couple doubles at like 85 or 87 and a half percent, then yeah, maybe that might get you some more of those neural adaptations that are associated with like the specificity of strength. Um, but you know, like volume over time being the, the key thing there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, a similar question, but uh, maybe even harder to answer than the first one. Oh, great. What is What would you consider to be the least important programming variable with respect to powerlifting performance improvement? Oh, man. Yeah, maybe harder. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I was like, oh, okay. Jordan's giving me the hardest question at first. This is <laughs> – the interview is going to be cake from here on out. Um, <laughs> man, the least important. Well, I'll give you my answer first and then you can, while you think about it, I think that it'd be, it's hard to make an argument that one particular type of exercise variation is significantly better in a predictive sense, in a perspective yeah. sense. Like if you were like, I think, you know, two count pause squats are better than pin squats. It'd be like, I mean, I don't think that you can make an argument there. Right. <laughs> or yeah, like, that's like you're splitting hairs and you need a very intense context. Like, a competitive powerlifter who's who's aiming for a podium spot at raw nationals. Yeah, right. And then I think if yeah, but they would have to know this historically, right? Right. Like, yeah, you'd yeah. have to go through and do like a block review and yeah. factor in their preference too. Exactly. So like that's what I'm saying. So the more important, it's not necessarily the exercise variation, like that you can predict. It's rather what does the person like, and what have they responded to well previously like helps kind of drive the boat here rather than like principles of exercise selection uh, that you can kind of tease out. Now, I will say that that's not a perfect answer because you would say, mm -hmm. all right, so Feigenbaum, you're saying exercise <laughs> selection is not important. Well, why don't you just do a bunch of like Pendlay rows for your squat? It's like, all right, well, you're right. <laughs> you, we have to restrict this, you know, yeah, it, it, in some fashion. But I think that if you looked at the other exercise variables, training intensity, training volume, rest periods, range of motion, like all of those things I think are more reliably important mm -hmm. to the outcomes than the exercise variations, as long as we're restricting them to something that's either based on historical, you know, proof of concept, like it, it you know, has worked right. well in the past or, or at least ha works the same muscle groups, um, in a, in a somewhat similar range of motion, like has some expected transference. It just, Mm -hmm. saying some to somebody like i think the two count pause squat is better than the than the box squat below that's below parallel you know because of this this and this it's like yeah you can it's okay to have that thought right but i, I just don't know that it matters unless you have 
historical experience with that individual and see how they respond to that. Part of me is like, yeah, man, just go with what Jordan said, because I agree with everything that you said. Um, but for, for the sake of this not being super boring, um, I would say that other than, um, than what you said about exercise selection, I would say maybe lift frequency oh, within sure. a microcycle yeah. doesn't is probably like the least important thing, because yep. I think that we get caught up a lot in this idea of splitting hairs between, you know, like... Um, how much does a two count pause squat four at eight, how much better would that be for someone than like a squat with belt for, um, 75% at sets of five? Like it, it really doesn't matter that much. So like, regardless, because I know some people are like, okay, well I only count frequency based on competition lift exposures, within a given week. But really like you have to think about an SSB or a two count pause squat or a belt squat as exposure to a relevant stimulus. Right. Yeah. And so I would say probably that like, um, lift frequency within a microcycle is probably the least important thing because I know that in my own uh, experience with coaching clients, I've gone back and forth where one cycle they will comp squat twice a week and then the next cycle they'll do once a week. But it's like, how does that uh, uh, lift frequency or training frequency impact your ability to load them over time, I think is Mm -hmm. what we need to think about more than necessarily like just some sort of like inherently fatiguing and terrible aspect of doing the comp lift more than once a week, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I think that's supported by data too, that training frequency. Uh, we previously thought it had a huge impact or a, at least a measurable and significant impact on hypertrophy outcomes and strength outcomes. It seems less reliable when you correct for total training volume. Um, so mm-hmm. what, Basically, that tra- training frequency, insofar as it affects training volume, can be a very useful sort of variable to to play with. Yeah, but- I think, um, and and kind of another thing that goes along with what you just said about the frequency and volume being equated um, within the like the bottom up framework that I use. One of the main ideas that um, is you know, held on to about what leads someone to being in a peaked state is how many exposures do they have to a competition lift, uh, Mm -hmm. stimulus. And I have, I took one lifter in specific and I figured out, okay, how many reps do they need to peak on this movement or like, you know, at their number of exposure where they were peaked, I guess, how many total reps had they completed in training, up to that point. And it was different on each lift. And I figured out a way to get them, uh, uh, peaked all each lift in the same week by equating their volume, uh, and over a certain number of weeks so that they had completed the necessary total number of reps, but had different number of competition exposures by that certain time. And they were peaked when they, when we equated volume across yeah. all the movements and stuff. So, um, yeah, I would, I think I would, I'm going to stick with my answer of frequency. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, and to be clear, it doesn't mean that it's something you don't need to, you might not want to play with, but then you have to look back and see, well, 
did this actually move the needle or not? Mm-hmm. Same thing with, with lifting variation. I'm not saying that lifting variation isn't important, but it's less important than the other spe- – like in my opinion, the other things that make a training program specific to towards a goal or not. And because as long as you're restricting that range of like different exercise variations you can use to something that, you know, trains the relevant musculature in a similar range of motion. Like, again, Mm -hmm. I agree with you that if you're counting exposure to the squat, then you have to include things like a pause squat, a belt squat, Mm -hmm. even a split squat. Like, even though they're not competition squats, they're still squat exposures. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think – I, I think that's another thing is that like we 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 try to think about it as like microcycles and it, it's all this very like well organized way of thinking about it. It's just very easy to think about microcycles or you know um, exposures to the competition lift stimulus, but really it's like we have to take a a less categorical view of it. I guess if that would be the right way to say it, in terms of stop thinking about things as um, you know, this is a, a, cause really when you look at the arrow of specificity, I guess is, is like a squat with belt and a pause squat and a belt squat are really not that far away from each other as we think. But in terms of the, when we're trying to get down to the small percentage of optimization of training, it does make a big difference. Like you would never try to improve your, your low bar back squat with a belt squat. Um, but you know, like really uh, a belt squat is a whole lot more specific than like cycling or, or something like that. Um, so it's like the, the context here misleads us in, in thinking about what qualifies as as an exposure and what doesn't. Yep. Well, so the frequency thing was something that I just recently changed my mind on just Hmm. based on new evidence. But then the question to you is with related in relation to programming, what is something that you've recently changed your mind on? Oh man, I feel like I'm constantly changing my mind on things and because I'm, I'm always finding like new resources and, and talking to people who have different, you know, coaching methods. And I'm like, wow, it's, that's not something I really considered. Um, but I would say the, something that I have recently changed my mind on is the, like how rigid we have to be when we think about training and how much attention to detail is required to get a successful result. Because I previously for the last, I don't know, um, eight to 10 years have been stuck in the, the whole like powerlifting context where I'm, I'm like, okay, I have to do everything about this protocol perfectly and I have to follow the rest periods and I have to make sure that that every piece of equipment that I'm lifting on is as specific as it possibly can be um, and which I mean is true but only for a specific population right like I don't think that um, everyone needs to lift with an Ohio power bar and calibrated plates to get a good response on their low bar back squat. And I think that we need to kind of um, embrace this idea that for non-competitive trainees, at least, that there needs to be kind of more range 
uh, and, and more freedom for stuff like that. Uh, because I, I was previously in this idea that, you know, everyone, regardless of their goal has to do the, like a, a barbell squat with belt, a two count pause squat and like a leg press. And now I'm just like, you know, like you can, your main lift can be a safety squat bar squat if you want. And like your, your SSP or not SSP, SPE, sorry, uh, can be a, a Bulgarian split squat or, or, uh, the, the stepper machine, if you want, it doesn't really matter as long as it is something that can be quantified and the load can be increased over time. And we can figure out with numbers a very, in a very rough sense, how it fits into your program. I think that it's okay. As long as the context allows it to be okay. Now, obviously I, I would never give a power lifter an, uh, SPE of, the step master for 45 minutes. Um, but I think that we need to kind of loosen the reins a little bit for people who don't fall into those sports specific, um, categories for what they're training for, um, and, and kind of give them more freedom and, and more variety in their training just for like their sanity and to keep training fun. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what has been reflected in our beginner template mm-hmm. in, pro- it, it, in program. It's just a, a look at like, what we would consider training for general strength, health, wellness outcomes. It's like you don't want to specialize actually in, you know, just getting better at a heavy set of five on three or four arbitrarily, you know, prioritized lifts. <laughs> right. I mean, really, you want more proficiency in different exercises and different rep ranges. And if, if there's such a thing as general strength, it's developing proficiency at a wide variety of tasks in domains, not mm-hmm. just one. Like right. rest- restricting yourself artificially seems like a bad way to go unless that's beneficial to your sport and you're giving prioritization to that, like which which you do as a powerlifter. But if you're not a competitive powerlifter, then I don't, I, I don't know that you should do that. So I, yeah, that's that's – I don't know that I changed my mind on that on that particular thing recently, mm-hmm. but it's definitely something that I've changed my mind on within the last few years. Just just thinking about like how do we get more people to train, exercise, mm-hmm. and and get, and get a what we would consider like a clinically significant benefit from. Mm-hmm. It just I can't make a case that the low bar back squat lowers hemoglobin A one C better than a high bar back squat, <laughs> better than a leg press, better than a split squat, better than a you know. A, anything really, right. you know, that, that, that it is done at similar relative intensities and, and similar volumes. Um, rather the thing that would be most indicative of a quote unquote clinically, clinically significant benefit would be adherence and right. how you get people to adhere to the program more. You make that, you make it more accessible to them, right. get them more involved in determining the aspects of their own programming, like what exercise do you like? What do you have access to resources, et cetera. So, right. And also taking it from this thing of like, um, being, cause like, if you think about strength training and how most people, you know, I guess you, if you would say outside of the physical culture world view strength training and, and all that is like, it's its own little culture and its own little world and people outside of it shouldn't, partake in its activities. It's very like a, Oh no, I'm not an exercise person or I'm not this or I'm not that. And I think that allowing for more freedom removes that barrier. It's like, yeah, you know, you can 
do this. It's very well within something that is easy for you to do. You just have to know what to prioritize in terms of understanding that being able to quantify loading and go about it in an organized way over time is is the really important part. You don't have to do low bar back squats. You don't have to even really lift a barbell if you don't want to. If dumbbell movements are all you feel comfortable with, then go for it. Um, I think that that is going to be a really powerful tool in helping spread resistance training amongst many people because it gives them more freedom and more autonomy and doesn't try to force them into this box that they might not want to be into, which could then, you know, cause them to fall off the wagon down the line, which is the opposite of what we want. Yep. Elegantly said. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We've talked a lot about learning, changing our mind, taking in new research. What's your, what's your learning process with respect to coaching? Cause you know, a lot of people are like, ah, and we'll talk about this. We'll get to a book recommendation list. It's happening folks. <laughs> Keep listening. But what, what do you find to be your sort of the, the, the habits you engage in most to improve your knowledge base for coaching? Oh man, probably I'd say at least within trying to, I'd say achieve greater depth with at least within, yeah, achieving greater depth within what I'm already doing as a coach, trying to ask questions about every interaction or every set of outcomes or, or anything that a client presents me with. Um, I try to see if there's something more there that I, I haven't really fully explored yet because I think that clients and lifters that you work with can teach you so much about the training process because it's a totally different viewpoint that they can provide you with for, for most people, at least there mm-hmm. are some people who are strength and conditioning coaches and, and they just want to outsource their programming to someone else. And it's like, we have very similar views of the process. So that happens. But, um, I think that with achieving depth within what I'm already doing, I think that that's probably one of the more useful tools that I have is just asking questions about everything and, and trying to see where I have gaps in things is just like asking questions constantly. And then to kind of expand my horizons and, and all that, I try to talk to people that I disagree with on stuff or have slightly different viewpoints or different backgrounds and try to get their opinion on new literature or what they are, they are uh, paying attention to now and maybe even ask them some, you know, like, like case-based learning questions or say like, Hey, I've recently approached this situation with a lifter that I'm working with. What would be your process for uh, managing this situation and seeing what mindset or what framework, I guess, they apply to facing situations. Um, I think that's been like super helpful for me so far. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I've been doing recently. So uh, Austin and I both read every day, uh, uh, and specifically some piece of primary literature. So I know we're both avid readers of like just books, you know, but, uh, Mm -hmm. but outside of that, it's at least one study a day that each of us will read. So it's usually not the same one and we'll send it to each other. It's usually like, it ends up being a barrage of text messages, but, uh, within the last mm, maybe six, eight months, what I'll do is he'll send me something 
And then I'll quickly glance at the, you know, the abstract just to kind of see, oh, what is it about? And then the first thing I do is I go try to find a paper that disagrees with the paper he sent me. Because mm. so because what I want to do is I want to read I want to read both of them and then roll it around in my brain based on the other things that I think that I know and see and try to identify both gaps in, in my knowledge to be like, okay, I don't know how confident I feel about this. It's not that I need to find the answer and have a concrete answer. I'm fine with the uncertainty, but I want to know like, you know, how confident can I be in certain things that I'm reading here? And like, how does this change how I think about things? And so I think it's nice to have, you know, both sides to an extent. You can't do those on everything. I think the last paper he sent to me um, had to do with, uh, it was actually with steps. So I just wrote a recent review for our monthly uh, review series on steps per day and uh, how that all kind of shakes out. And so <clears throat> he sent me a, 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 a review article basically saying that if people who wear wearable tech um, tended to not lose as much weight as individuals who had wearable tech uh, provided that they took this, you know, similar amounts of steps hmm. and uh, yeah, which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, very interesting. Wow. I had, re- I had seen that paper in a reference list of a meta-analysis that I actually cited in the research review. And so I had actually seen the abstract, but I didn't actually make myself read the whole paper. So then I went and read the whole paper and it didn't actually change much about how I thought about how steps can be used as sort of like physical activity promotion, you know, at, to a population. Uh, and it didn't change how I thought about wearable tech. I don't think that wearable tech is terribly useful outside of like if somebody needed a way to quantify how many steps that they were taking. And that was like the only way you could get them to be adherent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, it, it all, all, what it really did was alter my, like kind of further adjust my confidence level in wearable tech in this case. Like it, before it wasn't very confident. It was kind of like, well, you know, you know, if people want it, that's fine. And now I'm like, I really don't think it matters if you have wearable tech. <laughs> it just slid down the scale based right. on, you know, but that's, but had I not previously read a bunch of stuff kind of giving me that initial uh, push towards wearable tech, maybe not really mattering that much anyway, I probably, I would have had to look up something like that that say wearable tech's like really, really good. And then I would have had to like combine this and, and do this whole mental exercise. But yeah, so that's an interesting, the one thing that I would recommend people doing if, uh, so you, you talk to people who you disagree with, turns out. I disagree with a lot of people and sometimes they don't want to engage, you know, but sometimes they do. It's fine. Uh, but so the one thing, one way I'll do this on my own is by trying to find literature that disagrees with something else that I'm reading to see if I can get a better. Um, mm-hmm. And the the best way I try to do this. So PubMed, if you guys aren't on PubMed, like searching around, rooting around and you're interested in the stuff that that's like the website you got to go to kind of just anything you can search there. There's probably something on it. Uh, I try to find articles that disagree with each other that cite similar sources Huh. Yeah. Does that, so does like, that like happen very often? All the time. Really? All the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so you'll find – it'll be like, oh, this article also cited by this other article. And so it's like a little sidebar on the PubMed like when you search. Uh-huh. And so I'll tr- that will be the first place I look for a disagreeing article if we can call it that just to uh, – just because then it's interesting. It's like, well, you guys cited the same paper but came to different conclusions. I wonder why. What am I missing <laughs> here? So it's an interesting kind of mental exercise. But – Let's uh let's give some people some book recommendations. Okay. So if you had to list a handful of books, I mean it can be a handful or more than a handful, whatever you got, what would be your like you guys should read this 
if you want to know more about training, programming, exercise science, whatever? I'm going to be totally honest with you. Um, in terms of books, I don't really have much um, because I, I think that a lot of the books that are out there are either based on a lot of the you know top-down periodization stuff that doesn't have much great supporting evidence, um, or I think that they are just too, way too technical for the for most people to understand. Like like super training is a prime example of that. I have opened super training maybe twice, read a paragraph, said nope, don't get this, and then I closed it. Um, and uh, it's it's just like way too much for me to make anything useful out of. Um, but I would say if I, if I had to pick something, I would say that um, maybe the block periodization books are interesting places for people to kind of develop a general understanding of the training principles because I feel that block periodization in how it's supposed to be structured does a really excellent job of pointing out to people, okay, this is, this is what... A certain variable does in, in training. This is what intensity does or, or, you know, to enter the transmutation phase and we need to get fatigue super high or, or make it as hard as possible to recover. We would do this to the training variables. So I wouldn't recommend that people read those kinds of books for the purposes of learning something that would be directly applicable, but mostly read them to have something to think about and, also to get you thinking critically about training and periodization and program design, because as we've mentioned, there's several elements of what, you know, um, traditional top-down models like block periodization propose that are not all that solid. Um, so I would say that they would be useful exercises in, in critical thinking and, and just getting you kind of analyzing the, the training process and what training consists of. Yeah, I think Isserin is the uh, author on the block periodization text. There's Intro to Block Periodization, Advanced Concepts in Block Periodization. Um, the other book I like by him is uh, was it Advanced Fundamentals of Athlete Development. So those three books by Isserin I like. I like Transfer of Training from Bondarchuk. Mm, yeah, that's uh, a good one. I like Science and Principles of Strength Conditioning by Zet Siorski, which, yeah, it's a little technical and there's some stuff in there that's outdated, you know, with mm -hmm. respect to the periodization models. But I think giving people a base fund of knowledge to work from is, is useful too. And then Chris Beardley, Beardley's yeah, yeah, books, sure. Strength is Specific, and his Hypertrophy book. I think if you if someone read all of those things, I think that's a pretty good fund of, you know, programming knowledge. From an exercise science standpoint, you want a physiology background and it, there's no one weird book that you can read. That's going to give you that. The one I recommend most of the time is Brooks and Fahey exercise physiology. The problem is it's a textbook. Mm -hmm. I can, and it's not like a small textbook, like a review book. It's like a, it's like an encyclopedia and the section on thermodynamics and like biochemistry, I would just skip it. Well, because it's just – it's it's going to bog you down and it's not important to your understanding of what's going on. And I know there's some chemists out there, you know, people who really geek out. It's like oh, bioenergetics is everything. I'm like that, that's true, but you don't need to know like yeah. all the <laughs> valence electrons yeah, it's like, you know, and like <laughs> and, and yeah. reduction states. You don't need to know all that 
to, to have a general sense of, of what's going on. So yeah, I think that yeah. what most people can do to really improve their ability to extract information out of the more technical uh, sports science stuff is to try to use whatever online resources that they can find about like physiology and biomechanics to develop that base knowledge and then go more into the resources um, like a block periodization textbook or the, um, like strength is specific um, or the hypertrophy book, which I totally forgot about strength is specific. I read that and it's pretty good. So I strongly recommend that book. Yeah. By Beardsley. It's yeah. also two ninety nine on Kindle. So it's like you have no excuse. Right. Uh, the only other book that I recommend on physiology is Costanzo. It's a purple pa- uh, paperback book. I don't know if she, they, if she even makes it in a hardback, but it's this, this physiology book is much more concise and uh, easier to digest than I think Brooks and Fahey. So if someone's like, I've never taken a physiology class, what book do you recommend? That's actually what I recommend. It's uh, physiology. It's purple. It's by Costanzo. And then, yeah, I could go on with book recommendations, but they're not going to be about exercise. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, very cool. All right. So look, we've been here for an hour. Alex, where can people find more about you? Uh, pretty much the only place i can be located on the internet is instagram my handle is alex underscore barbell medicine and yeah that's really it i don't have a facebook i don't have a youtube channel don't have a twitter man i'm really boring i'm not on social media i don't watch movies i don't watch tv i rarely listen to music i just study on friday nights and and train that's about it i mean for a 25 year old you're yeah, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta help you out here with your, with your internet game. Yeah, I um, need, um, I need like an internet, uh, uh, linear progression program of some kind. Yeah, the barbell medicine internet template's gonna drop. <laughs> uh, if you guys want to get in contact with Alex and don't want to slide into his DMs, you can send us an email, info at barbellmedicine.com. We will forward emails appropriately. And thanks again for everyone for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. If you're listening over on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so that we can help inform individuals in the community. Thanks again, guys. See you later. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.